Let us once again hear our gospel reading from Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for sending the Spirit to give us life and to empower us for the call you have given us to carry your words of life to the ends of the earth. Please allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts to be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and nearest kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. You know, one of the challenges that we face, actually since creation, is that as men, we want to understand everything. Now, we certainly know that God has given the duty of kings to search things out. So, as ones who have been given dominion, we have a call to search out things, including the deep things of God. The difficulty is, we don't want to merely search out the deep things of God. We want to declare that we know and understand all things of God. That's our, that's our heart's covetous nature towards God Almighty. We certainly see this with Adam in the garden. How did the, how did the serpent tempt? He said, you will be like him. Hath God really said, and you will be like him if you eat this fruit. It's our desire to be not just in the image of God and uh, in that way conform ourselves to Christ Jesus and his righteousness. No, we want to act as if we can simply know and understand all things of God. We've seen this throughout history, Greek philosophy. We saw it rise its ugly head at the Renaissance. We saw again the elevation of man and his intellect in the Enlightenment. And we see it rising its ugly head today where people desire to define all things the way that they see it, as if there is no absolute infinite God and as if there is no absolute truth. People of God, we must recognize that we are finite. Job chapter 38, beginning verse 1, says this, Then Yahweh answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Now i got to tell you, if I was struggling with something, and God showed up on the scene, and this is where he started out, in my own strength, in my own wisdom, I would be afraid. What, is, what does God say here? Prepare yourself like a man. You know, in our circles we talk about, you know, masculinity, you got to be a man. What is a man? 
we see that, that Jesus, the perfect man, he took up responsibility for others, and he faced the hard things. But we need to recognize that we are mere men. We are mere people. We do not have total understanding. God goes on in Job 38 and says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. And there's a whole field of science that is trying to figure out the measurements of the world and the universe and how it all came into being. And they are searching. Sometimes it's really, and listen, I'm not a physicist. I don't understand all the deep things of math and science as it relates to all that. But sometimes the way that those in science speak of their knowledge, they speak as if they were there. And this is problematic because we were not there. We have limits to our understanding. And God says this, were you there? And he says, surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were the foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? We see again in Psalm chapter 113, verse 4, Yahweh is high above all nations, His glory above the heavens. Who is like Yahweh our God, who dwells on high, who humbles Himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth? Now, like when we hear that, we often, I, well, I'm going to back up and say, perhaps I, right? I'll put this on myself. When I read that, sometimes I say, oh, yeah, God's higher than the nations. And, of course, his glory is, is above the, the heavens. And who is like Yahweh our God? Who dwells on high? And yet my, my human tendency, and I think it's true of all men, is to say, I try to be God. I try to, to dwell on high. How is it that we should live? We should live as one who humbles himself so that we understand that we must have God to explain the deep things. Now here's the, here's the thing. Today is Trinity Sunday. And the whole reason I'm bringing about the point of the fact that we cannot know all things is that the Trinity is a mystery. We can't actually understand it in its fullness. There is no full way to explain it. We search for analogies. But people of God, all analogies to explain the Trinity fail. I imagine some of you have seen the Lutheran satire. where you got these two little farmers there, and they're asking St. Patrick to explain the Trinity. Anybody seen that? Okay, a bunch of you. If you haven't seen it, someone out there on the realm, share the link. But it's pretty funny because they're, they're just talking about trying all these different analogies to explain the Trinity, and you simply cannot use what we know and understand to explain the triune nature of God. We are simply left with what the Bible says. You know, that's kind of the problem for us. We don't want to simply take what the Bible says to be true, to be all truth. We don't want to submit ourselves in every area. We find all kinds of places where we're going to try to negotiate. 
I'll take this part. I'm not so sure about that because that's going to infringe upon my desire to do this or that. But we must submit ourselves to what the Bible says. That He, that is God, is three in one God who exists in three distinct persons, each of whom are the same in essence, power, and glory. It can only be believed. God has chosen, check this out, God has chosen not to explain it. He didn't give us an analogy for it. God has not given us a philosophical way to explain it. And yet, we make attempts. And again, I'm not discouraging us from searching the scriptures and diving in a deep way to understand God and the triune God and the triune life of the church. What I am saying is, be careful. Some things of God, we simply have to say, this is true because God himself said it. Instead, what God does to help us know this truth is he uses plain language. God doesn't want us to simply think of him in the abstract. Now, why, why do I bring that up? Because sometimes we, we take it, and, and historically we've taken the Trinity and we've taken the things of God, we've created this, they did this really well in the Enlightenment, this deistic God, and he's way out there, he's unknowable, He's just some idea or concept of the mind. And that is not true. So let's see, let's look at a few passages here that speak clearly about God as one and in his triune nature. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning of verse 4, it says this, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. So we know he is one God. In Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, it says this, When he, that's Jesus, had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So we see at Christ's baptism, we see the triune the three distinct persons of the one God. In John chapter 15, beginning in verse 26, it says this, But when the Helper, that is the Spirit, comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify in me. So we have Jesus himself, again, speaking clearly, saying, There is the Father, there is the Son, and there is the Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. This is the last verse. I got to thinking about this later. I don't know why the lectionary reading cut this one off because we did verses 11, 12, and 13. We should have kept going to verse 14 because it says this at the end. It says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And he finishes with Amen. So we need to, to recognize that the scriptures are very clear. God is revealing himself as one God in three persons. We see again in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in 
Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Again, we see this in this greeting that Peter is writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And after he says all of these things, he says, grace to you and peace be multiplied. In God there is grace and there is peace. And the peace in the triune God is multiplied. Now our one God, he lives in an eternal community of fully divine and also eternally distinct persons. Each person of the Godhead delights in giving their gifts to one another. The triune God existed before time and creation in full loving fellowship. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Father created all things. He created all things by the Word, that is the Son, by the power of the Spirit. In the fullness of time, He, that is the Father, sent His Son to be a man without relinquishing His divinity, but becoming, but He became fully man by the power of the Spirit. Right? We know the Spirit overshadowed Mary. Through the life and death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus the Son, the Father reconciles the world to Himself. He draws all men from death to life by the power of the Spirit. By the power of the Spirit, men are united to the Son and given life, and brought back into relationship with the Father, Son, and Spirit. People of God, there is no life without communion with God. We see in John chapter 1, verse 4, In Him was life, this is Jesus, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The only life is found in Jesus. Outside of God, no one understands what true living is. We simply grasp around in darkness. But if we look a little bit farther in that passage at verse 14 of John chapter 1, it says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This means, because God is love, and we know that from John chapter 4, verse 14, or 1 John chapter 4, verse 14, this means because God is love, He who is love, He is one who exists in a communion of sacrificial service of glory with Himself. He was moved to seek, that is God was moved to seek reconciliation, the restoration of mankind back into his love. Salvation is the restoration of man back into the triune fellowship of God. This restoration is life to man. Salvation is communion with the Father in the Son by the power of 
of the Spirit. Salvation is about communal life in God and others. God did not leave us in the dark without life. Jesus was not only the life, but he is the light. Jesus revealed the triune God to us. John chapter 1 and verse 18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Jesus declared God to us. Now this is really important because Jesus has declared God to us. This has absolute implications for all of us. And this is more than simply a set of suggestions. Jesus is the absolute revealer of who God is and his love, which brings life. Jesus is the word of God. Listen, the word is not a mere set of good ideas. There are people out there that think, oh, the Bible, Jesus, you know, there's some good ideas in here, maybe some good suggestions, maybe some good ways to live. No, Jesus himself is the word. It cannot simply be a set of good ideas or suggestions. The word has come in Jesus, and he reveals God in clear and absolute ways. The incarnate Jesus is the full self-revelation of God by the power of the Spirit. God had fully revealed himself in his Son, and this happened when Jesus became one of us. Jesus has revealed to us what life, what true life, what really living looks like. What life really is. Life is a sacrificially serving relationship with the triune God and with his people, the church. We, you and I, have been given a mission of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 18, says this, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed us to the word of reconciliation. Our gospel reading today tells us that we do this ministry of reconciliation in two ways. We do this by baptizing the nations and then teaching them to obey all that God has commanded. Now listen, we are baptized, our text in Matthew 28 says, in the name that is singular, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The true living God exists in three persons. By the Spirit, baptism restores us, and then we can receive instruction how to live in the communion of the triune God. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, says this, There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, 
one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. We are the baptized body, one body. Salvation is communal. We are saved together in the Father, in the work of the Son, by the power of the Spirit. We need to understand that we are created in the image of the triune God. Genesis chapter 1 that we read earlier. And verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. The eternal, self-sacrificial and glorifying triune God has been in a loving relationship with himself, and he created us in his image. God is not a monad, just existing as one person. So being made in his image, it is no wonder that in verse, uh, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, that Yahweh God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Because we're made in the image of this triune God who lives self-sacrificially to the glory and benefit of the other persons in the Godhead, when we are created, we are created also to need another person. We need others around us. The life of God is a shared life. Our fellowship is in the communion with God and others. We cannot enjoy life in isolation. We know this because the triune God lives in mutual respect, reciprocal love, and service to the persons of the Godhead. He exists in communion within himself. He expresses his love within himself, exalting others. God is not a solitary being. So what does it mean to live in light of the triune God? Because we can hear all this stuff, and to a certain degree it sounds a little complicated. But what does this mean for you and I? We need to recognize this first. Unbelieving man is not interested in living in unity of self-sacrifice. It's sort of like this. Every man for himself. We saw that in the life of Israel and Judges, right? Every man did what was right in his own eyes, not in a way that was serving to others, not in unity of self-sacrifice. Instead, and, and listen, I want to be very clear here. Every time, and I said this in Sunday school, but I want to emphasize it again here. Every time we are talking about the unbelieving, and we go, yeah, look at that terrible sinful way to live we need to remember we are it we have the same sinful natures we have the very same tendencies so people of God guard your heart know that you are called to live in unity of self-sacrifice 
What does the unbelieving person do? Instead, they live in one of two ways. They desire isolation or they desire absolute power and dominion over others. Because God is not a solitary being, we are not to live in isolation. I'm going to tell you, as a man who's who's been in the ministry in a variety of capacities for many years, this is the first thing that happens. Pretty quick, somebody living in sin starts backing up. They start backing up. They start finding ways to isolate themselves. People of God, we are not to live in isolation. One of the, the dark things in church history is this elevation of the hermit. I was listening to, to uh, someone speaking on this, um, on isolation and, and hermits. I don't know if you know this, that the state of Idaho has the highest amount of people living in isolation than any other state in the Union. Now, I'll say this. I think Christ Church and our brothers in Moscow are working real hard at remedying that, bringing people to the church. But we are not to be living in isolated lives. Proverbs chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, says this, A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. A fool, and this is connected here, a fool has no delight in understanding, but in, but in expressing his own heart. When we isolate from others, this means that we are simply wanting to live seeking our own selfish desires. When we seek our own desires, we end up in a state of rage. Remember it says here, he rages against all wise judgment. This is the same word rage being used in Psalm 2 about people raging against the constraints placed on them by God. So that's interesting. When we isolate, we begin to rage against the constraints that God has laid out for us. When we seek our own desires, we will do this for our own self-preservation, and we will attempt to break the constraints of God's law. We will hate and kill others who get in the way of our pleasures and desires. This leads to violence, killing babies, killing off the old, the infirmed, or the otherwise unproductive for the benefit of our own selfish lives. This is not what God has for us. God has called us to live in community with one another. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, says this, Therefore... As the elect of God, that's you and I, holy and beloved, not because we're righteous, put on tender mercies, mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Now, this word perfection can be better understood as maturity. We should be growing in these things, maturing in these things. And guess what? We can't do that in isolation. When you're all by yourself, all of these things, 
All of these things, tender mercies. What, to myself? That's self-serving. Kindness. What, am I just kind to myself? Humility? If it's just me, who do I have to be humble to? What about meekness or long-suffering? If I'm in isolation, how do I bear with someone else? If I'm living all by myself, independent and trying to get away from others, how am I to forgive someone else? Oftentimes you find someone who's living in isolation who feels like someone has sinned against them. They feel like someone has committed a crime maybe even against them. And these may even be true. But you see the difference between guilt and bitterness? Is guilt is about the sin we've committed and bitterness is about us holding on to what others have done to us. So living in isolation, it's about nurturing our bitterness. God has called us to live together. It's interesting. We're to do all these things because for others because Christ forgave us. So we also not maybe should think about doing, but it says here in this passage, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you were also called in one body, and be thankful. So when we do these things, we see that the peace of God, we are to let the peace of God to rule in our hearts. And we do this in one body together. And how are we to do this? With thankfulness. Now think about this. All of these things, if you're living with other people and they're challenging you and they're, they're rubbing off the rough edges, right? We're supposed to be thankful for that. When we're bearing up with one another, we're supposed to be living in peace and being thankful to God for these things. We are to know that the life of the triune God is to be in relationships with persons of the church, the body of Christ, serving each other for the benefit of one another. We, saw, we see all around us in our culture that there are those who simply want to have power and dominion over others. <coughs> Excuse me. They want to force people to recognize, hold on to, and affirm ideas and people who are in outright rebellion to God's revealed word. Again, I want to emphasize this. Every time we see this and we go, oh yeah, look right here. Guard your hearts in this way. But I think we can look out there and see this going on in the culture around us. Unfortunately, many churches today are living with the view that people should be forced to embrace and accept sin as good. Jesus, in Matthew 20, points out that unbelievers like to lord over others and exercise their authority over people to suppress others for their own selfish desires. But we are not to live that way. 
we are to serve others. Because of this, our calling as his disciples to imitate Jesus and that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If we're truthful, sometimes we grow weary of loving and serving one another right here in this local body. Do you see your wife, husband, and children, those that you are living in communion with, are you doing it, living as the triune God does? When you look to your right and your left and you see those in your household, are you living and serving for their benefit? What about others in this church? Are you loving and serving one another within the communion of our triune God? One commentator points this out. If you ignore and despise God's church, you are not worshiping the, tri the true God because God loves his people and he will not be separated from them. Salvation is found in Jesus alone and it is worked out by the power of the Spirit as he, that's God, works through his people in our lives using them, his people, to conform us fully to his image. When you're in isolation... There's no one to challenge you. But when you live in community, when you live in community with one another, now you're challenged. That's where you become conformed to Jesus Christ. God uses his people by the Spirit to save and sanctify us. This is why we need the church. Apart from the love and perfect will of the Father, there is no life. Apart from the love and perfect obedience and the work of the Son, there is no life. Apart from the love and the power and grace of God, the Holy Spirit, there is no life. Salvation is sharing the glorious life that is the love of God, and by that being conformed to Jesus in this love. Salvation is by the triune God. We have no choice but to love one another. Let us hear one more passage. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, help us to understand these things. Deliver us from errors and the ignorance of our age and the deceits of Satan. Help us to think clearly and faithfully according to your word. 
Forgive us of our sins in despising you by despising your people. And help us, we pray, to honor you by loving one another, to love you by loving one another, and to serve you by serving one another. Hear our prayers and uphold us. For Jesus' sake, who reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, world without end. Amen.